Hey, Karen. Oh, there's Bob. <laughs> Where's Bob? Oh. I think he's. Oh, that's so. dinner. Yeah. Just, <clears throat> you start it. Sorry. Yep. Can you start it? <laughs> um. Dave K. Um. Okay, let's let's start. Um. Um. I I'm I'm not going to read Supernatural Love. I'm going to hold it off for David. And Kay, I don't know what to say because it looks like you're admitted, but it keeps saying you're waiting in the lobby, so I don't know what to... Are you both here, David and Kay? Yes. Yes, we okay. can hear you. Okay. That's okay. 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 Um, I'm going to read a, um, a poem by Hopkins. It's called The S Soldier. Um... Sorry, I did, um, it's it's a it's a little bit appropriate. I, I read it last night for the uh, our last class on Old Man on the Sea, Hemingway's Old Man on the Sea, because it's about a an old veteran seaman who's really toughing it out. Um, it, it's like a warrior fighting a battle at sea. Um, the enemy is the I can't put it that the the opponent in this conflict is a is a marlin, but it's about an old man toughing it out, um, trying to um, bring in this marlin, and he successfully finally brings him in, and then he's attacked by sharks, and it's a, it's a, it's a story about struggle. And tonight we're going we're gonna to pick up and get into the Aeneid a little bit more closely, and, and you know that we're going to be dealing with a man who's, who's whose whole action is involved with struggling and conflict. Um, so I thought this would be appropriate. Um, wait, I'm sorry. I've got to say prayer. I'm really sorry. Let's start um, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um... We always approach you in the Mass saying, um, I'm not worthy to receive you. I'm not worthy to receive you. Under my roof. Under my roof. Um, it used to be, I'm not worthy to receive you, Lord, but um, only say the words and I shall be healed. So my prayer tonight is that all of us carry that with us, whatever we do. We're in a culture that encourages us to be proud of our accomplishments, to think that we're worthy in things and that we deserve things. You know, we work hard um, to get our homes and develop our families, and those are good things. Those are all good things. Um, but there's a lot in our culture that encourages a pride, um, that we think we deserve things, we're owed things, and if we don't get them, we get really angry. Um, sometimes even violent. So, and you know that there's a lot of violence precisely because of those attitudes. Um, so my prayer is um, help strengthen in us a spirit of humility. Help us to be courage, to be brave, to do your will, to stand up for you. But to put away that kind of 
spirit that I'm talking about. Um, um, too possessive, too arrogant, too proud. Um, um, help us to to be with you in our efforts to bring justice into the world, to take justice seriously. That's a call you fulfilled, you came to answer. But also to bring your love, strengthen in us and efforts to put ourselves away and still step forward with courage, um, particularly where we're going to face opposition. Strengthen that spirit in us, please, all of us. Help us to stay open to these works. These are um, great poets. The whole thrust of this for me is that there are two kinds of prophecy, one coming from you, it's in scripture, it's in our tradition, and there's a kind of prophecy on this side and in the natural order in people who seem to be in some way close to you doing something to bring you to our world. So help us to stay open um, to see if we can find you in our ordinary lives outside the boundaries of church um, and bring you there ourselves. Um, help strengthen us in these efforts. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, the poem I'm going to read tonight is called The Soldier, and it's by Hopkins. Um, you know, I've been reading from him from the last week, so I don't need to say anything more about him. I'll just give the poem. <clears throat> this poem is called A Soldier. Uh, yes. Why do we all, seen of a soldier, bless him? Bless our red coats, our tars, both these being the greater part but frail clay. All of us have clay feet, something weak in all of us. Nay, but foul clay. So not just frail clay, foul. There's something bad in us. Here it is, the heart. Since proud, it calls the calling manly, gives a guess that hopes that, makes believe the men must be no less. When we go into war, we're going to give our lives up. You know that. Soldiers go into war knowing they may be taken into an action in which they're going to die. I mean, that's what they're facing. That hopes that makes believe that men must be no less. It fancies, feigns, deems, dears, the artist after his art. If an artist is worth his salt, he's got a battle on his hands. He's trying to take us someplace where people don't ordinarily go. It takes a lot of courage to do that and Hopkins knows that if a man, a poet, doesn't learn to put himself away, he won't get to whatever that is he's struggling to find words for. It fancies, feigns, deems dear the artist after his art, and fame will find a sterling all as all is smart, and scarlet wear the spirit of war there express. Mark Christ our King, he knows war, served the soldiering through. There's nothing that he did that he didn't do in the spirit of a soldier, fighting a battle all the way through. He of all can reeve a rope best. There he bides in bliss, now and seen somewhere some man do all that man can do. For love he leans forth, needs his neck, must fall on, kiss, and cry. O Christ indeed, picturing Christ on John's shoulder, whom he loved, you know. 
Um, and also, when Christ stood above Jerusalem weeping, when he knew Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, the love he must have felt watching a community that he loved about to be wiped out, and also knowing that the men he loved would follow him in persecution. Um, got a picture of God laying his head on their shoulders, weeping for them. There he bides in bliss now and seeing somewhere some man do all that man can do. For love he leans forth, needs his neck must fall on, kiss and cry, O Christ indeed, so God made flesh does too. Where I come again or where I come or again, cries Christ. It should be this to be a soldier. Um, okay. Um, let's, let's start. David and Kay, are you here? Are you present in this, in our room? Yes. Okay. Okay. Because your name is stuck here at the beginning. It says you're still being admitted. <laughs> it says we're connecting. <laughs> it says we are kind of, you know, waiting in the lobby, I think, but, uh, so we can't see your face, but then we can hear you. Okay. Um, I, I, I wish I could help better. I think if you hit a visual button or video button, you'll probably be shown. But I'm going to mute all you guys. And remember, just for the clarity of the sound, anytime, anytime you have a question or a comment, jump in. Do not hesitate to interrupt. Okay. Um, so I'll mute you all, um, hoping that'll help. But um, okay. Um, last week we started Virgil. Um, started Virgil, and I did a quick review of the Homeric world. I, I want to just briefly touch on it again. Hi, Maria. It's good to see you again. Welcome. That big smile of yours. Um, thank you. Good to see you too. Th thank you. Thanks. Um, I just touched on the Homeric world and and I only want to call it to mind um, because, <laughs> because um, this is going to be a major major part of everything we do with Virgil and I and it's going to take a while for you to appreciate this but it um, when you see it, it it I think it's going to knock you over um, but remember the Greek world in the Iliad and the Odyssey we, we saw Homer's treatment of two kinds of perfection one of them was a man at war Achilles and we saw that um, this war between the Greeks and the Trojans had gone on for nine and a half years and there was no reason to think that it wouldn't go on for another nine and a half years. Nothing would bring that war to an end. Um, men were killing each other and glad to get their booty, you know, the, their rewards. Um, and they had a righteous cause. Menelaus wanted to avenge Paris taking Helen, so they were very righteous. They, they had a cause. But it went on for nine and a half years, and it would have gone on forever. But Achilles, you remember, stepped forward. He fought with his king. He said, you can't do that withdraws from the war, the Greeks are losing everywhere, Agamemnon sends an embassy um, to Achilles to try to bribe him back into the war, he doesn't come. 
It's during that scene in book nine when he says, I think, I don't, I don't want this booty. I don't want these possessions. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. And in those words, we're made aware that a man has become aware himself that honor is different from the way men look at it. Honor is not something that's conferred on a person by his possessions. It's something intrinsic and it expresses a transcendent element. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. There's the God sees some intrinsic dignity in man um, that can't be taken away. And he stays out of the war until Patroclus dies. You remember then when Patroclus dies, he comes back into the war, but he feels guilty for Patroclus' death. And he says, I let everybody down. He's the only man in the book that admits his fault, said, I let everybody down. And um, to, to write what he's done, he goes back into the war. And he knows when he goes back into the war, he's going to die. And you know that I've likened that moment to an alcoholic standing in front of a group and saying, I'm an alcoholic. When we can admit our sins, when we can freely acknowledge our faults, what is there to be afraid of? Until that moment, all of us are paralyzed in some way by some fear. Some fear will have a hold of it. It'll keep us from doing something. But he passes that moment, and you know when he enters the war, there's that psychomachia. All the gods become involved in the war, and it's like this conversion, this change, involves a, um, a realignment between the earthly order and the supernatural order. He goes back into the war, and nobody can stop him. And he kills Hector. Odysseus has to get home, and you know that he's on his way home, and he can't get home until he deals with all these archetypes. And what he does is he finally gets home, and, and my contention last week, if you remember, I, I, I read that piece that I'd written, um, where do we find all the archetypes at home? Scylla, Charybdis, the Sirens, Ostrigonese Queens, Circe, Calypso, almost all of them feminine. The one masculine one is the Cyclops. Where do we find them? They're all there, largely in the, in the suitors. The, the, the Cyclops is an image of everything that motivates those suitors. They eat men up. The woman, the mill woman at the end, when Odysseus cries out, you know, for a prophecy, um, she says she hopes that Zeus will bring an end to what these suitors are doing because they grind down her knees. That's exactly what the Cyclops does. So the... Um, the Cyclops um, are a, a visual, a visible image of what's invisible inside those men. Odysseus has to learn to see beyond appearances. He can't be deceived by appearances, and I'm trusting all of us know that. If we go through life taking life on appearances, we're going to be duped, we're going to be do stupid things, um, there's going to be something wrong in everything we do. He has to learn to see beneath those. And the greater part of the archetypes have to do with feminine powers. And I suggested last time, they're all in Penelope, every one of them, um, particularly with respect to lawless men. Um, that is, all these men who want to look at her as an object. Odysseus partakes of something in that until he gets home to deal with it. So killing off the suitors is, in one sense, learning to kill off all those hundred things in a man that are aroused by a beautiful woman, by the beauty of women. And I tried to suggest here that, um, that it, um, we don't do ourselves a justice if we underestimate the beauty of women. 
the beauty of women is a tremendous power over men. Um, I think more than the world wants to admit. So only when he kills them off, that is when he becomes lawful, when he deals with all those things, that he can come to Penelope and be together with her in the way that a husband and wife could be. So I think the whole journey is to make Odysseus lawful. It's, it's to deal with those lawless disorders in a man that are aroused by a woman. And, and we've seen, you know, the Lestrigonese queen has too much power. Circe and Calypso have inordinate power. There's something very possessive in women. Um, these are qualities that women possess. Um, every man has, in a marriage has to learn to deal with them. Um, and my contention last week, it's only when he does that that um, he can look at Penelope as a person, not an object, as a person. And it's only then that she can look at him as a person. Because if we take the feminine archetypes seriously, we know that women use men just as much as men use women. The sad thing about our culture today is that they, most people tend to see it only one way, but I think anybody who's honest notes that women are, are as inclined to use men as men are women. It's, it's one of the effects of the fall. Women use men a lot. They're just, I think they're far more discreet about it. Um, so we saw Homer giving us an image of the ideal man at war, at home. Okay? So he gave us the two cities of men, the city of peace, the city of war. And he showed the, the, the natural perfection that man's capable of. Not supernatural, that's going to wait on Christ. But the natural perfection um, that's, that man's capable of. Okay, that's where we were. Now we've entered a Roman world, and what we're, find, what we're going to find is that Virgil takes that entire Greek world and transforms it. And here's one of the major things that I want to um, I, I want to um, stress tonight. We've talked about the apophatic, yeah, that which is there that we don't see very well, but it's there. I've used the example of taking the Eucharist. You know, if people believe in the Eucharist that that's the real the real substance of Christ in His body and blood, that there's something divine that it passes to us. Most food that we take, we change into ourselves, right? It becomes part of us. When we take the Eucharist, we do it with the understanding that it's going to change us. That Christ has invited us into a divine life, and we've been invited to share in it something of his divine nature. That means that we should be able to bring something divine to the world that we can't bring on our own. So this notion of the apophatic, we can't see, and I've, I've tried to illustrate, just asking you to imagine, when you take the Eucharist and you're on your way out in the parking lot to your car, where are you? you know, you're in a parking lot, there's the car, you're going to drive home, but where are you? If you've taken the Eucharist in, and you, in faith, you believe that, then you know in that moment that you're with Christ in his kingdom. That's our faith, that we are somewhere, even with our sins, even with our sins, um, that's where we're invited to be. So where are we? Can a poet find words to help describe that state? I hope I'm clear here, right? Because the easiest thing to do when we're on the way to the parking lot is describe the cars in the parking lot and the people around us. Yeah. Who can find words to describe those things inside of us? Hard thing to do.
the apophatic is always dealing with um, what we know but can't be known in ordinary ways. And poetry, as I've been suggesting from the beginning, is one of the forms of knowledge that can best do that. I, I think more than anything, certainly more than anything in the sciences. So, one of the most amazing things that Virgil's doing, it's at the heart of this, and nobody who hasn't read um, the Iliad and the Odyssey will see it. You guys have. The Iliad and the Odyssey are present in every single line of the Aeneid. Absolutely present. But do you see it? No, you don't. It's buried, it's implied, it's embedded. And once you see that, it should, it should awaken a new way of seeing again. I mean, one of the things I've been stressing all along. Then where are we? Um, how do we look at our parents? Our parents are no longer here. Our mom, dad, our grandparents. Those we love are no longer here. Where are we in relation to those people? The Iliad and the Odyssey are over. They're dead. Homer lived in 800. Virgil's writing in 70 BC. Troy was destroyed in 1200. He's writing about the, the destruction of Troy 1200 years earlier. But he's writing about something moving on to the founding of Rome. Rome's already in existence by that time. But he's showing that that Greek world did not die in the past. It was not left behind. It's present. Can you see it? You guys following? This may be too mystical. I don't know. You guys following? No. Somebody help out here. Marilyn. Somebody. Can you... Can Somebody... No, I can't believe this. Nobody has a question. Connie. Somebody tell me if you're not understanding because I can go over it. You all look... I'm not understanding. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's see. How do I make this clear? I think probably the easiest way to make it clear is to go to the book. But let me, let me just try to state it again and then I'll go to the book. So, um, how do I make this concrete? First half. Hmm? The first half. First half what? Of the Aeneid is. Oh, you know. Um, That's clear. You, yeah, I know. Well, so you all, you all know that when we take the Eucharist and we go outside, that we live in a different world than somebody who doesn't, right? Somebody who doesn't believe in the Eucharist just goes out to a car, goes on his way to work. If our faith is real, when we take the Eucharist and go on our way to the car, we're not in that same world. That person's going to get into a car if he's not taking the Eucharist, go home, go to work, go to the park with his children, whatever he's going to do. We believe by faith and a sacrament, not just by faith, we're not Protestants, by a sacrament, Christ's life has entered us. He's with us. So it should hopefully make a difference in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we look at our world, and what we do in it. So even though you're in a car and the guy who doesn't believe in the Eucharist is in a car and you're both humans and you look alike, you're both humans, there should be something going on in you, in me, that's different. And ultimately, it should show in our actions. We're bringing something of Christ to our world, if that's our faith. 
So that's the apophatic. Now in Virgil, what Virgil's doing in his poem is he's carrying the whole Homeric world into the poem. Every line. The first six books of the Aeneid are modeled on the Odyssey. They're about Aeneas's wanderings. Now you've we've done them, so you know them. The Strigonese Queen, Sirens, Scylacaribdis, Calypso, Circe, right? You've we've got them in us. Except when Aeneas goes through those journeys, Aeneas is going to go through the same or similar journeys, but they're going to be radically changed. So he's taking everything that Homer did and changing them. You'll see in a minute because we're going to get into the book. The last six books are modeled on the Iliad. When Aeneas gets to Italy, he's going to have nothing but fights, and all of them are racial, ethnic fights. People are killing each other because of their racial differences. So the most vicious fights that Aeneas will, will um, face are racial. And he will not be able to found Rome until he puts to rest those fights. So all of the fighting is modeled on the Iliad, but it's different in lots of respects. In the Iliad, it was Greeks against Trojans, and when we come out of the Iliad, it's the Greeks who win. It's a very ethnic book. I mean, the, the, the Homer shows that there's something all men are capable of, whether you're Greek or Trojan, but cultures matter. Um, but the Greeks defeat the Trojans. In the Aeneid, when Aeneas goes to, to Italy to found Rome, he's going to have to do battle with all these ethnic peoples, and the Rome that he founds will be universal. It will be a city like any other city that's ever existed on the earth, It'll be a city in which all men can come, whatever their racial backgrounds, because they, they will not be able to let their racial background divide them. So the, for the first time in history, we have an image of a city um, in which all people can come together. It's like for the first, chance, first time in history, they can all be children of God. Their racial differences will not separate them or cause them to do a battle. So the whole Homeric world is carried forward and transformed. Okay? I, that's an opening statement. I mean, is that clear? Does, um, Tina, did that help? Okay. Let's, um, any questions? Karen, you've got a question. I didn't have a question. I had a thought, though, but I was thrown off when you said, where are we when we're in the parking lot? We should carry that Christ within us, like, up until the next time we, we receive the Eucharist. Yeah. And I was thinking on a limited term, but, you know, I don't know, small mind. <laughs> no, 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 no. Where, are you, where, you going to go anywhere with that? What are you doing with that? Yes. To what you're I, saying. Take it. Fifteen minutes. Or... What? Um, no, I was just, I was just, I, I didn't have a question, but that was what I guess you were reading on my face was that. Um, that's what confused me initially was about that qu the question of where are we when we're in the parking lot. Right. 
but right. it's much longer than the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, for all of us, lots of moments. Yeah, they're all. That, I mean, it seems to me that's always true. If you, um, you know, if you have faith in Christ, that's part of what's going on with us. So we should carry that with us all the time. Maybe, maybe some moments were better than others. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm going to speak for myself right now, and um, I, I mean, we struggle to do it, and very often we fail. Yes. I mean, I, otherwise, I don't know why we go to confession because um, we'll do it. But I, I mean, I, I, I think I've said this before. I think, I think all of us carry two wounds with us after Christ. One of them is the wound of the fall. We all carry the fall with us. We're, we're wounded. We, we're in sin. But I think the other wound is that um, we try to love like Christ. He's God. And we often fail. So um, we have to bear our failures. I mean, we have to carry them with us. We go to the sacrament to be reconciled. You know, we, we take the Eucharist is a moment of reconciliation. We go, we go to the Eucharist to be reconciled. With him. And we go to confession. So we're asked to carry it to get better. But I think part of what helps us get better is we constantly admit our sins. We know we're... We know we don't love the way he does, and we struggle to try to love the way he does, which means we often fail. Um, I think it's one of our great gifts, you know, that, because the people who don't who don't have any sense that they fail at things, I, mean, I just I think that's a sad life. To me, it's so unreal, you know, to go through life thinking there's nothing wrong with you. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that person not doing anything but creating problems for himself and anybody who cares about him. Or her. Um, okay, let's let's go to the book. I really want to get to the second and third book here. I want you in the book so that what I'm seeing. Go. Sorry, Anne. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Anne. And more of a historical background. As I'm reading, I realize in the book that Aeneas has been called, and he's very faithful uh, to found the new city. I know that Troy is destroyed. Uh, the Greeks go home. Did they ever, did they try to rebuild cities where they fell? It seems to me that that would be a logical thing for people to come back and rebuild. I'm a little bit confused, Anne. The, the war took place in Troy, so it was in Asia Minor, it was on that coast. The, there were no... There were no towns in Greece that were under siege, so they didn't have any rebuild. Well, no, 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 no. I'm saying the Greeks went home after the war, right? According to the Odyssey. So why couldn't the Trojans rebuild their city where it's still? Oh, oh. Or did they just not do that? I mean, I, I understand from the standpoint of the book that yeah. that. Yeah. Was called to found a city elsewhere. I just Troy was still being destroyed when Aeneas left. Mm -hmm. But it's a good question. Um, well, um, what a good question, and I've never faced a question like that before. But right off the top of my head, it's off the top of my head now. I'm trying to picture somebody, let's say in Louisiana, whose uh -huh. town has been destroyed by a hurricane or. A, <clears throat> Lots of people are going to rebuild. They're going to stay there and rebuild their city. Florida, I mean, mm -hmm. California in an earthquake. Mm -hmm. um, 
Some people are not. They're going to pick up and move. You know, it's just a, um, they're going to look at what's happened. And, and in this case, I mean, let, let's go to Afghanistan, you know, or a, a war-torn area where you're not talking about a natural catastrophe. You're talking about a war um, where you're consciously facing an enemy who has something against you. So if you're in Afghanistan, you're in a region, your city's destroyed, um, what do you do? You, you can stay and rebuild. But if what's happened makes you question who you are, what you are, your identity, um, then I think there's, there's, a, there's a different ground for what you do. Um, and I think it's in, in that sense that we have to see the Aeneid. And we're going to see this if, I mean, I, I, you're sort of getting ahead of me and I didn't even realize it, but because what's going on here is that when the city is destroyed, a whole way of life is wiped out. And I think it, bring, it brings them, like any of us, the Renaissance is a moment like that when science changed everything. When people face those moments, when suddenly something happens that wipes out a way of life, you can't assume anything anymore. You, you can't take things for granted. And it's, so what, one of the meanings of the Aeneid is that story, in a sense, represents a moment when you can no longer assume your past. You can't take it for granted. You have to move on be, because there's a new world there for you. Let me, let, me, let me try to break it more. I mean, I, I was raised Greek Orthodox. I think I've told you guys all of this. I was raised, raised Greek Orthodox and converted. It was a number of books that I read. G.K. Chesterton's Chesterton had a major influence on my conversion. But I, I'll never forget that moment. Leaving to, to, to be a Greek Orthodox means you're in an ethnic community. It's like being Turkish or Jewish or black. or You're in an ethnic community, and you can't separate your ethnic identity from your religion. To be a Greek Orthodox means you breathe Orthodoxy, but you're Greek. To convert, to become a Catholic, puts you outside that ethnic world. The Greeks won't... You don't belong to that world anymore. I mean, you, you discover there are ethnic prejudices. I think that's true of almost all ethnic peoples. The Greeks, the Turks, the Jews, blacks, whites, I mean, all of us. Um, when you face that moment, when I faced it, you know, entering the Catholic Church, I, it was like I had to give up everything. Be, because everything about my past didn't square with it. There was something else there. And entering the Catholic world took me into a new world. I mean, there were so many similarities with the Orthodox world, but so much that was really different, particularly ethnically. Um, when Suzanne and I first started going together, my mom looked at her with a little bit of um, reservation, let me put it that way, with reservations, because my mother was very, she belonged to that Greek world. She, she didn't, she, I'm trying to be kind here. She wasn't as forthcoming with Suzanne because Suzanne had blue eyes. She'd have, you know, I mean, she wasn't Greek. So, I mean, you enter in a new world, and once you enter into that world, you suddenly realize that you're in the same world. It's a, you're with human beings. People live, they eat, they die, they have ethnic customs, but your whole way of standing that world changes. What's happening in the Aeneid is that, that they're not just rebuilding to recover what they've lost. This is the crucial point, I think, Anne. They're not staying there to rebuild what they lost. 
This represents a, a radical change in history where they're going on to something new. That's why I've tried to stress this point. They're taking that whole Greek world forward, uh -huh. but it's being radically changed. And there's no way they could have done that if it simply stayed where they were. I guess that's the best way to put it. Does yeah, that help? Thank you. It was helpful. It helped me to think yeah. through it. Okay. According to Wikipedia. Sorry? According to Wikipedia. Yeah. Troy was rebuilt. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear, Doc? Did you hear Suzanne? Troy, according to Wikipedia, she, she's doing her research on this. Um, it was rebuilt. Okay, I want to go... Yeah, or so it's. Let's go to book one, pick up where we left off. Um, you remember that um, the book opens with um, Aeneas heading for Italy, but he gets blown off course and. Um, Um, and Juno, or sorry, Venus goes to Jupiter, the goddess of love goes to Jupiter, the head of gods, and makes an appeal to him um, um, because she's watching the human that she loves, whom she believes is going to found this new kind of city being thrown off course. And Jupiter gives this prophecy, and I want to look at it because um, I, I want to start putting things together more carefully. And we got past the overview of last week. It's important now to start looking closely at things. She comes to him on page 11 in our book. And um, she says on page 11, this is about line 300 or so. My Lord who rule the lives of men and gods now forever, bring them all to heal with your bright bolt. What in the world could my Aeneas do? What could the Trojans do? So to offend you that after suffering all those deaths, they find the whole world closed to them because of Italy. They've already suffered enough. Um, why, why are they having to suffer more? Um, she makes an appeal for um, freeing him. Remember that um, um, Juno is the one who got the god of winds to cause this storm to, to storm to throw him off course because she resents the fact that Rome will keep Carthage from coming into being. Now the relationship between Carthage and Rome are absolutely crucial in these first six books, the opening books. In the notes that I sent you, um, there's a section on the end of one of them that lays out the Carthage, um, the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome. It would probably be good for you to look at it um, um, you don't need to look at it. The, the, the book is going to tell us everything we need to know. But what's at issue right here is just exactly that, that, that Juno wanted Carthage to be the greatest city in the world and was on its way to being the, the major city in the Mediterranean world um, when, when Rome came into existence and they had these great battles. But Jupiter says this, that um, Rome will, will come into being. On page 13, what he does is describe this long list of events that are going to take place that are the preconditions for Rome coming into being. Okay? Now remember, the Trojan War took place in 1200. So this is where we are. And Aeneas is, Virgil is writing 
about 29 BC. So it's 1200 years off from the war. Okay, and he's writing about Aeneas who was fleeing as one of the survivors of the war. And Jupiter gives this prophecy to Venus. Top of 13, when the Rutulians are subdued, he'll pass three summers of command at Latium, three years of winters, but the boy Ascanius, that's Aeneas' son, to whom the name of Elu Iulus now is added, Ilius, while Ilium stood, Troy takes its name from Ilium, Ilius, it's Aeneas' son. Ilius, while Ilium stood, will hold the power for all of 30 years, great signs, great rings of wheeling months. He will transfer his capital from Lavinium and make fortress Abalonga. Three full centuries, that kingdom will be ruled by Hector's race. Hector, who was ignominiously killed um, until the queen and priestess Ilia, pregnant by Mars, will bear twin sons. You should, most of you know this from school. Afterward, happy in the twenty pelt, his nurse, the she-wolf, wears young Romulus, will take the leadership, build walls of Mars, and by his own name, his people who call them Romans. For these I set no limits, world or time, but make the gift of empire without end. Juno, indeed, whose bitterness now fills with fear and torment, sea and earth and sky, will mend her ways and favor them as I do. Lord of the world, the Tonga-bearing Romans, such as our pleasure, he goes on and on. From the comely line, the Trojan Caesar comes to circumscribe empire with ocean, fame with heaven's stars. Julius, his name, it'll go on um, until it gets to Augustus Caesar. Now, you know that we talked about this just momentarily last time. Virgil is living during the time of Caesar Augustus, um, who closed the gates of, of war, the Janus Gates. And Rome lived under what they called the Pax Romana, which was a relative peace for 300 years. And Augustus was the leader then. Now here's my question. This is a prophecy by Jupiter. Um, um, how, did, how could he speak of all these things? That are yet to come. It's really easy. Don't be fooled here. And I put your audio. I hear you. Put your audio on. Did you? I said because it was written much lighter. Because they've already happened, are... right? All of Homer. So Virgil. I mean, he's he's doing actually what Homer did in some respects. He can put these words in the mouth of Jupiter, right, as a prophecy of things to come, because in fact they've already happened. But in a sense, it's interesting because what he's showing us is a sense. I mean, there's some quality to this. It's almost as if there was a providential way, a divine way, that worked out that this was God's rule, his order, his providential order, bringing justice into the world to get past that ethnic Greek world that characterized the Homeric world. So we're moving to a much more universal sense of justice, to something that's going to come into being they will make it possible for a greater justice between human beings. Now, before we leave this point, just remember that the two of the great, the during the Renaissance, most Renaissance people looked back in the past and said that there were three ways: the way of Athens, the way of Rome, and the Davidic way, the way of Jerusalem. 
Those were the three major paradigms for all political structures. The way of Athens, the way of Rome, the way of David, the Davidic way, the way of Jerusalem. America takes its founding, if you know anything about the um, if you know anything about the American founding, you know that all of the American founders were, were well read in the history of Athens and Rome. America was founded on the basis of those two regimes. Democracy and Republic, equality, freedom. It's, it's the tension between those two political ends that defines America. Is that clear? Athens, democracy, Rome, Republic. We've introduced something new into the world with Marx. It's an ideology. It's not something based on nature. It's an ideology. And you know that, um, that a lot of people are motivated by, they don't go back to a natural order. They go back to an ideology, a, mark, a, form, a, a utopian view of a, social, a socialistic state. So in the modern world, we're facing something completely new. But the founding principles of America were an Athenian democracy, a Roman republic. So they would have known all the works that we're talking about. They would have known the Aeneid would have been a really important work for all of them. Um, you know that Aeneas comes on shore in Carthage. He's greeted by Venus, who disguises herself. She encloses um, him and his um, captain in this cloud, and they approach Carthage um, on page 19. And um, this is really important. On page 19 it says, he looked up at the roofs, for he entered swathed in clouds, strange to relate among them, mingling with men yet visible to none. Nobody can see him. Venus has made him invisible. She's trying to protect him. In midtown stood a grove that cast sweet shade where the Phoenicians, shaken by wind and sea, had first dug up that symbol Juno showed them. A proud war horse's head. This meant for Carthage, prowess in war and ease of life through ages, here being built by the Sidonian queen, was a great temple planned in Juno's honor. And we already know from what Venus told Aeneas when he first arrived on shore, that Dido was the queen, that she fled from um, Tyre, which was a commercial regime, a business regime, because her brother killed her husband and sent her flying. So she took her possessions and came to um, Carthage and founded Carthage. So she, she's a fugitive like Aeneas. They're both fugitives. They're fleeing from persecution. But her image is, um, this is so crucial, this meant for Carthage prowess in war and ease of life through ages. The regime that she's making, Carthage was like a business enterprise. It was a commercial enterprise of the world. It was given to power and machinery um, and wealth and comfort. Okay? Now hold on to that because what we learn through the whole of this is what defines Rome is not ease and comfort. It's suffering, struggling, constantly going on. Um, um, our end is not here. It's elsewhere. So the image, the icon... The logo of Rome is a proud warhorse. No, that's Carthage. I mean, sorry, what did I say? Carthage. Yeah, you said Rome. Yeah. When we get to Rome, what we're going to see, when we get there in book six, we're going to see Aeneas is going to be at the Tiber River, and he will be given a prophecy to show that he's home, 
after all of his struggles, he finally comes home. The image that he sees that will be the defining image of Rome will be a sow with her 30 piglets. So set a war horse next to a sow with 30 piglets. One's noble, heroic, constantly striving for power, wealth, comfort, business-like, efficient. The other is a sow, nurturing, humble, low. It's almost grotesque. It's a, it's a sow, it's a pig. It's anything but noble because Rome is a place for everybody, not just for the noble. So in these two images, we, we get a clear indication of fundamental differences between these two cities and what Rome means for the world. Okay. Um, now here's what I wanted to take a minute with on page 20 and 21. They pass into the city and the cloud is taken away and Aeneas and um, Achates' companion stop and look at Juno's temple. Um, Dido built this temple in honor of Juno because remember that's her goddess. And on, on the walls of this temple um, are scenes depicting the Trojan War. So the temple's made up all, all these panels and in each of these panels is the Trojan War. It's a way of indicating just as, I mean it's sad for me to watch what's going on in America. The past is there. This place has no meaning apart from the past. There was nobody who lived in the ancient world who didn't look past back to Troy as a defining moment. It was a struggle between two civilizations, two people, and a civilization was destroyed. Troy was wiped out, and all the peoples came to be involved in it um, from the east. Now here's what here's what he sees on page twenty-one. Maybe you should be quoting lines instead of pages. Um, top of twenty-one. You all have the Fitzgerald copy, right? I hope. I hope. It's because the line, the line numbers change from translate. I mean, there, they can be hundreds of lines off, but it's in our, in our copy, it's um, page 21. Right. Um, the Trojan women walked with their hair unbound, bearing the robe of offering in sorrow, entreating her, beating their breasts, but she, her face averted, would not raise her eyes, and there was Hector dragged around Troy walls. Um, three times, and there for gold. Now, pause on this. Just think about this. Um, we're watching, we're being given a description of, of um, Trojan women and Troy being destroyed. There was Hector dragged around Troy walls three times. We saw that at the end of the Iliad. And there for gold Achilles sold him, bloodless and lifeless. Now indeed Aeneas heaved a mighty sigh from deep within him, seeing the spoils, the chariot and the corpse, of his great friend and Priam all unarmed, stretching his hands out. This is only the beginning of what's going to get worse in the next chapter because we're going to actually be given a description of what happens when Priam's killed. He himself saw in combat with the first of the Achaeans and saw the ranks of dawn, black Memon's arms, Memon's arms, then leading the battalion of Amazons. With half-moon shields he saw Penthesalia and Amazon, fiery amid her host, buckling a golden girdle beneath her bare and arrogant breast, a girl who dare fight men, a warrior queen. 
Now while these wonders were being surveyed by Aeneas and Dardania, while he stood enthralled, devouring all in one long gaze, the queen paced towards the temple in her beauty, Dido, with a throng of men behind. As on um, Eurotus' bank and Cynthia's ridge, Diana trains her dancers. Diana remembers the virgin goddess. Um, so two things. Um, anybody aware of any ironies in this moment as Aeneas looks on the Trojan War? Remember, he's been at sea for seven years, almost eight years, having left Troy um, um, with the call on the part of the gods to found a city. He's not found it yet. He's not even there yet. He's been struggling for eight years. He's looking on these panels and he sees all these stories depicting him as a hero. Any ironies? Aware of any ironies here? Let me put this a little bit differently, speaking on a, if I can make it more personal. The older Doc and I have gotten, the more aware we are of our failures as parents when we were younger. When we look back at, you know, what we did, I mean, neither one of us tried to do consciously bad things, but we're, the older we've gotten, the more aware of failures. I mean, we just didn't see a lot, you know. We came to the Catholic Church later, our life has changed. Um, if I were to go back and be a parent now, I hopefully would be a different parent from the one I was then. I mean, I'm assuming most of us have those feelings. Some of you may be too young, I don't know. Um, but I think the older we get, the more, the more aware we are of how we've changed and aware of how different we are from where we were there and we want to try to be better people. Um, if, you, if you are aware of that, and you look back at your pictures when you were 20 and 22 and 24 and having children, would you look at those pictures with no sense of irony or would you be aware of a difference of what you didn't see then and what you didn't feel and you know things like that? Aeneas is looking at this, um, at this um, temple and it's, it's honoring heroic men, these great deeds that were accomplished. This is one way Virgil's changing that world. Is that clear? It's one way. That world is depicted in all of its glory, but here's a man who was one of the great heroes of the Trojan War, looking at that war, I'm looking at that, those panels, and he's been suffering nothing but defeats for eight years, almost eight years. Imagine a man coming back from Afghanistan. He goes into a war thinking all these noble things. He's going to do these great things for his country. And then he comes back having done whatever he's done, witnessing rapes or killing or innocent, you know, innocent people dying. Does he look back on those years the same way? What Homer's making us aware of is something's changed and it's hard to see. He doesn't describe Aeneas's feelings. He doesn't go into them. We're just shown a man looking at these pictures, but they're all pictures of these great heroic deeds he did. And the great irony is Troy was destroyed and he's not the man now that he was eight years ago. Is that clear? So we're already, in a very subtle way, being helped to make a change, that a transition, a, trans a transition, a, a transwriting, a translating, transforming is going on. What do you do with this? 
And there was Hector dragged around Troy walls three times, and there for gold Achilles sold him, bloodless and lifeless. What's your response to that? How does Virgil look on Achilles? Is his view of Achilles the same as Homer's? Anne, you're shaking your head. I one of the I have really enjoyed this book, seeing the other side. Right. It, it brings it to completion. Right, right, right. And some of the things that seemed heroic in the Odyssey seem far from heroic here. <laughs> right, right, right. The Ellie. Right, right, right. This is the the guy, the greatest hero of the Iliad. I mean, I hope I did justice to him. You you certainly know my reading of him. I think he's extraordinary. In that world, he's unmatched. He brings that war to an end. This is Virgil's view of Achilles. This guy's a scoundrel. Everything he did was for gold. <laughs> um, and remember, remember in the ninth book, he gives up all of his booty. I mean, this is so we have to may have to question. But the the point I want to make here is that is that just as Anne said, we're now so in the Greek world, we're showing a, a culture triumphant. They accomplished this great thing. It brought this war to an end, and we've seen two heroes now. Now we're going back to that world, except now we're seeing it from the point of view of the underdog, the people who are defeated. These are the ones who's lost the war, and we're being given a completely different view. And from this side, we're <laughs> the first presentation we get of Achilles is that he he killed Hector for booty for gold. Now that's just the beginning of it. Okay, so. He comes into Dido's court. Um, Juno, who's very guarded about what's going on, makes um, Aeneas' son and Aeneas fall in, or um, Dido fall in love with Aeneas and his son. Um, so she becomes um, enraptured by them. He's brought into the court and he's asked to sit down and tell his stories. Um, and it's here now that um, in one sense we're brought back to Odysseus's world when he sits down with the Phaeacians to tell his story. Remember? He's going to go through his voyages until he got there. On page 35, this is in, in book two, the second section of it, um, he tells the story of how um, the, great, the gates were breached, how the, how the Greeks, who, who could not manage in ten years to bring that city down, brought it down, okay? I mean, you know it as the Trojan horse thing, but uh, this, is, this is where we get Virgil telling the story of um, exactly what happened. On page 35, he's talking about this fellow that they discovered, a man named Sinon, with his hands tied, um, whom the Greeks left behind. On page 36, Sinon describes what had happened, that the Greeks were in council trying to decide whether or not they were defeated and leave or whether to continue to attack because it seemed pointless. Um, page 36 in the middle of the page. Um, 
being kin to him in my first years, I joined him as a companion, I think this is Palamedes, sent by my poor father on this campaign, and while he held high rank and influence in royal councils, we did well with honor. Then by the guile and envy of Ulysses, that's Odysseus, but notice the language, by the guile and envy of Ulysses, nothing unheard of there, he left this world, um, and I lived on but under a cloud. So he was um, an outsider of sign, of kind. Um, page 36, or sorry, 37. Many times the Danans wished to organize retreat, to leave Troy in the long war tired out. If only they had done it, heavy weather at seas closed them so they couldn't get away. So in our quandary, we sent um, Eurypylus to Phoebus's oracle. He brought back this grim reply. So this is from the oracle to the men. Blood and a virgin slain you gave to appease the winds. Um, for your first voyage, Troyward, Odanans, blood again, and Argive blood, one life wins your return. You remember the Trojan War started when Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter in order to get past the winds. That's what, that was the sacrifice that had to be made for the Trojan War to take place. That's why Clytemnestra kills him when he gets home, because he killed their daughter. When this got round among the soldiers, gloom came over them, because somebody had to be sacrificed. Who had death in store? Whom did Apollo call for? Now the man of Ithaca called Calc hailed Calchas out among us in tumult, calling on the seer to tell the true will of the god. The man of Ithaca is who? That's Odysseus. So there he is again. He calls him out. And you remember Calchas. Calchas was the seer who began the Iliad. Remember the Iliad began when Calchas came out to give the prophecy. Um, <coughs> Um, and, and um, ransom his daughter, or I mean to give the prophecy about the ransoming of the, of the girl. For ten days the seer kept still, kept under cover, would not speak of anyone or name, or name a man for death, till driven to it at last by Ulysses' cries, by pre-arrangement. He broke silence barely enough to designate me for the altar. Every last man agreed, so they were going to kill him. He was going to be the sacrifice. He escapes. Now remember, this is Ulysses with a prearrangement with a guy who seems to be doing something sanctioned by the gods when it's a connived, it's a made-up plan. Okay. He escapes um, on page 39. The whole hope of the Danans in their confidence of the war they started rested all along in help from Pallas. Then that night came when Diomedes and the criminal Ulysses dared to raid her holy shrine. They killed the guards, they took the statue, um, and what, so what they did was um, violate the sanctuary. Um, and the men think that Athena's angry and will ask something in reparation. Um, so Achiller, Odysseus concocts this plan to build this horse and leave it, at least outwardly, as a sign of reparation to the gods and to the Trojans. So they build, build this horse, set it next to the gate, and then seem to depart. But you know that hidden in the inside the belly of the horse are the Achaean men. Um, now before all this happens, they leave, they, before they do this, um, the, the Greeks seem to have departed and the Trojans are left on their own and one man comes, Laocoon, 
with his two boys and snakes come up and strangle Leokun, this is on page 41, and his two, his two kids, and then leaves. And it leaves all the men, all the Trojans, terrified, as if they're in the midst of something sacred happening. Um, now you know what happens then. The, tro the horse is taken in, the, the, the um, horse is taken into the walls, and at night um, they're let out, and they open the gates, and the Greeks come in, and Troy's destroyed. But let me stop here. What's Virgil? So we, when we leave the Iliad and we start the Odyssey, we don't see Troy destroyed. We never do. We know that it's going to be destroyed at the end of the Iliad. We're about to be given a description of its destruction here. Aeneas is going to continue in a minute. But our, our, I think our assumption is that Troy was destroyed because of these great heroes, particularly Achilles. Men like Achilles, Diomedes, Odysseus. What's Virgil's account of the destruction of Troy? What destroyed Troy? What led to Troy's destruction? How's his account of the destruction of Troy, how's it different from Homer's? Marilyn, Connie, come on, where are you guys? How's his account different? Wow, it must not be. Karen, what's going on? When you guys put down the Iliad and you knew that Troy was going to be destroyed, what was your sense of how it would be destroyed? And when you pick up Virgil now and you get this count of sin and what the story he's telling, how's it different? What's changed? Did you turn the air conditioner on? It's cold. Wow, really. Wow. You want me to turn your phone No. It's treachery. Yeah, it's not virtue or power or superior strength. It's deception. Um, it's guile. It's trickery. And worse, um, it's blasphemy. Truly, truly. The Greeks are using the gods, the way they depicted Odysseus, the Greeks are using the gods for their own advantage. And it seems to me one of the, and this is really interesting because Virgil's no, remember one of the, one of the ways I tried to present the Odyssey is that it's the first really anti-romantic book. Homer doesn't romanticize anything. There's no black-white. Most choices involve us in suffering. Um, Virgil, Virgil, by the way, Virgil's called melancholy Virgil. We're going to see why in these opening chapters, Melancholy Virgil. All the chapters are filled with loss. Loss after loss after loss after loss after loss. I mean, he's going to go on for all this time and just experience nothing but losses. Um, what we get from Sinon is a picture of treachery and betrayal and cunning and guile. The one most responsible for it is Odysseus. 
And the way that Virgil shows Achilles is that he's everything he's doing is for gold. He's just greedy. Um, but one of the interesting things about the the way he presents Troy's destruction is um, the breach is caused by cunning and deceit and because of a failure on the Trojan side. They're too superstitious. You know, when the when Sinon gave him all these omens and then that that violence happens with Laocoon and his two sons, the Trojans are overwhelmed. They take it as an omen and they're afraid that something is going to go on and so they open the gates and let this Trojan horse come in. So on Virgil's part, there's a, a sense of a real lack of prudence, of the, the reality of things. I don't know how else to put it. They're, they're too taken up by a religious superstitious sense of things and it leads to their destruction the cunning of the Greeks is going to take over so Virgil's learned a lot from Homer I mean he's got a lot of the you know the the, the qualities we associate with um, Odysseus that he's careful he he's caught it's like Christ saying be on guard be as wise wise as the serpent and gentle of the dove People who don't do that are too innocent. They, they, they act like the world has no evil in it. What, what, um, Virg, or what Virgil's showing us here is that the Trojans were far, far too superstitious. Um, and the Greeks would play to that. It makes the Greeks worse, it seems to me, because um, what they do is a betrayal of the gods. It's a blasphemy. They're using the gods for their own ends. So the the... Virgil's description of the fall of Troy is anything but heroic. When we leave the Iliad, we've got a sense of heroism, even with the death of Hector. When we go into the, um, the world of the Odyssey, we're in a heroic world. We're going back to that world now from Virgil's eyes, and we're seeing nothing but bad, or a lot of bad that we didn't see in... Um, in uh, in Homer. Any any questions or comments before we? I want to look at the some of the scenes um, in which we watch Troy falling right now. We'll actually see the destruction of Troy. But before we go on, any any scenes? Why does it feel? You're you're cold. You're hot. Wow. It's seventy-five. Is it? Yeah. Any questions? We're watching a great Greek world turns on its head. And so this is what I meant about the translating, the, the carrying forward, the ap apophatic, that the Greek world that we've all experienced is being carried forward, but it's being subtly changed. We're between two worlds. We're watching something under construction, being translated, moving forward. And I'm, I'm choosing these words, I hope you hear carefully. It, if we're living with Christ, you know, if we're living with Christ, how open to we, are we to mystery? Are we, if, we, if we're in a world of grace, are we under construction? Do we carry our sins with us? Are we being open to the changes? leaving behind our past, moving forward. That's, 
the center of the Aeneid action. Is that clear? Is that becoming clear? You know, a while ago I was asking you guys and you all looked. Marilyn, Michelle, is that, is that any clear? Connie? Connie, ask me a question. Come on. What's, what's puzzling on that mind of yours? What are you puzzling over? Oh, not much. I really, it, it, it's really, it's kind of difficult for me because I, um, I haven't really, I don't get to read the book that much. So it's really hard because I babysit for my grandbabies and by the time I'm done at 530, I'm just, <laughs> I'm pooped. <laughs> so it'll be, I mean, if I look at a, a, a book or two on the weekend that I'm doing good, yeah. it's, just, it's really tough for me. It's, yeah. it's tough. I really just enjoy um, listening and, and learning. I really still am learning a lot. So good. When when you, I'm funny because for I mean our grandchildren are getting older, you know. But in the first years, Susanna used to have them a lot, a lot, and it became a, a nightly ritual here that I would. There's a funny story here. If I can stop the class for a second. Um, if you knew me, you'd know how much I love stories. And so when the kids were here and they were younger, I'd tell them stories and. It became a nightly ritual. They they wanted stories before they went to bed, and and um, Jonathan and Emily um, lost a child. Um, Emily miscarried. I miscarried. I don't know. Can you guys hear that? I don't know what that is. No. Um, Emily miscarried. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Can you? Emily miscarried, and they named the, the boy Francis. And after that miscarriage, when I told a story, it would usually be of an adventure story, because it was five, five boys. It's usually an adventure story, and very often I brought them into it. I mean, you know, I, they would be the ones involved, and it would usually be an adventure story. And I got to a point where sometimes the turn of the action would depend on Francis coming into the story and doing something hilarious. And... And there were times when the kids would just, in one story, Francis came up behind William, who was the oldest of the grandchildren, and whacked him on the seat when William was trying to sneak up on somebody. The kids just broke into laughter, and it was just, you know, you could hear laughter all over. They couldn't stop rolling in their beds. Anyway, stories became a part of our life. And as the kids began to grow, we, don't, we didn't see them as much. We, you know, they've got their own lives, and they're going on. But, but in that interim period... Um, once when they were getting a little bit older and so they weren't staying as much, they asked Jonathan, our son, our youngest son, if um, he would tell them a story. And so Jonathan started to tell them a story and all the kids howled and they said, no, that's not the way you tell a story, Dad. <laughs> they would have nothing to do with it. <laughs> it was hilarious. Anyway, Connie, what I was going to say is if you reach a point where you have to tell your grandkids bedtime stories, Read, read from the Aeneid. <laughs> they, they, they'll hear the rhythm of the lines, even if they don't understand it. You can get along in your reading. Oh, that's true. That's true. Right now, the stories are all about Avery and Preston. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the way, Connie, I've been meaning Susanna. How's your mom doing? Is she doing okay? How's your mother doing? My mother-in-law, she's doing good. She's she's doing her uh, third treatment. Um, it's another treatment. They did the first treatment, and 
it shrinked it a little bit, the Canton Long, but um, not enough, I guess. So now they're doing, um, oh my goodness, I can't think of the name of the treatment, but she's fixing to do her third one tomorrow, as a matter of fact. But she's like just a whippersnapper. She just turned 89 and... God, God. She doesn't feel sick. I mean, she's just amazing. It really is. That is amazing. Yeah. I almost did, I almost don't get through days and I'm not undergoing treatment. <laughs> so your mom your mom's gotta be a tub bird anyway. She is. She's, she's was my mother in law, but she she's oh. something else. Thank um, you, Brad. Okay. Um some, did, sorry, did somebody have a que something? I have a question. Is that Kay? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. I can't turn the video on, so uh, for some reason it's just not turning on. Uh, the question is: I lost you, Kay. Can you hear us? We are going through. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, we can. Okay. Yes. Uh, Rome, uh, at this period, uh, supposed to be going through racial tensions, racial struggle. How do you relate that to the uh, current situation of the United States? <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to go there, Kay. <laughs> wait, hold on. Let me just, wait, let me just say this. Um, I'm horrified by what's going on, and more, more sad than I can tell you. Sad, more than I can tell you. But hold on, just remember what I said. Virgil's living at a time when Rome is virtually settled. It's a republic. They, they're long past the um, kingship. I mean, when they got rid of the Tarquinian kings and established the, the republic, that republic's been in existence now for a long time. Um, one of the reasons for the civil wars in Rome at the time Virgil was living was not ethnic. It, um, it had to do with the notion of um, freedom. You know, and if you know Shakespeare, you know this, that um, Brutus and Cassius assassinated Caesar because he was claiming imperial powers. So he was, he was seen as a threat to the Roman Republic. That's how much they loved freedom. So they went to war. And Caesar Augustus is the one who came out of it triumphant. But if you remember Anthony and Cleopatra, that Caesar is the Caesar um, that's living um, while, while Virgil's living. But we're going back to a time before Rome was founded. Now remember, Virgil's living in 71. We're going back to 1200 BC. This is just after the Trojan War. So we're watching a man back in 1200 struggle to find this land to help bring to being this prophecy that Jupiter gave that this city will come into existence that um, will we'll bring all people together. Um, I, the comment that I made earlier is one that I take very seriously is I think America that the um, America was founded on the basis of Athens and Rome. Those were two of its major paradigms. The other was Jerusalem. And um, we were created in order to get past tribal differences. That's our call. Um, to not let tribal, to not let racial differences divide us. The whole, the proposition of America was all men are created equal. We couldn't let 
class divisions, racial divisions, um, prejudices about religion keep us from getting along. So um, what I'm watching today to me is a horror, but let me not go there. I mean, I'm, it's an, it's, I think it's an awful time for America. We're really struggling with something that's... But, but insofar as our beginnings had that Roman ideal, that Athenian and, I, you know, and Roman ideal, we, um, Lincoln's way of putting it to me was best when he said, um, in the, the, the point of the Declaration of Independence is that um, we were committed to the proposition, the proposition that all men are created equal. And it was a proposition because it's yet to be proved. America came into existence in order to prove that we could do that, to get past racial, tribal, class divisions, and come together as one people. And and that and you know, I mean, that's obviously one of our great struggles. The Civil War in the 19th century was um, a, a great crisis for us. Still is. Um, Anyway, let's get back to the book. I want to, um, so, um, quickly. Aeneas goes to the palace. I want to stop by one passage before we get there. On page 48, the Trojans put on Greek armor for a moment to disguise themselves, to, to escape getting killed, um, because their, their numbers are... Um, the numbers are small. The Greeks are overwhelming them. On page 48, they put on Greek armor, and they look like Greeks. And they're killing Greeks off, but they're discovered. Middle of page 48. Then some whom we'd taken by surprise under cover of night throughout the city and driven off came back again. They knew our shields and arms. For liars now, our speech alien to their own, they overwhelmed us. Corobius fell at the warrior goddess's altar, killed by Peneleos, and Riphius fell. Now hold on to that line. It's not going to mean anything to you now, but I'm going to give you a quiz. Connie, I don't care if you've read it or not because you've heard this from me. I'm giving you a quiz when we do Dante. Because in the middle of the Paradiso, when Dante is halfway at Paradise, he's, he's going to look in the Eagle of Justice, God's Judge. This is our Catholic Church, by the way. This is all of it. All of it. He's going to bring Rufius into this. I mean, remember, Virgil's his guide through two-thirds of his journey. Not Homer, not Aristotle, Virgil is his guide. So he knew Virgil, I think, better than almost any in the world has did or has since. But here in the middle of this war, as, as Troy is being destroyed, the Trojans destroying um, Greek armor to disguise themselves, and suddenly they're uncovered. And um, Aeneas is describing one of his soldiers fallen in this way. Killed by Penelaus, and Riphius fell, a man uniquely just among the Trojans, the soul of equity, but, God, but the gods would have it differently. Now I'm going to, that would be a passage you could pass on. You, I mean, there's no reason to remember it. Except I'm asking you to remember it because when we get to Dante, Dante's going to do something amazing. Because Dante is going to be doing with Virgil what Virgil's doing with Homer. Dante is going to carry that whole world forward. It's going to be a part of our natural heritage. Our nature will be kept with us, but it's going to be transformed by a grace. That's peculiarly Catholic. Okay. So remember that name. He goes on to the palace, and there um, 
he watches Priam, the king, killed in a, um, in a merciless way. Achilles' son, on page 51, um, Pyrrhus, comes to the um, palace and is, is going to kill um, in, a, in a murderous, butcherous way. In the middle of page 51, what was the fate of Prime, you may ask, seeing his city captive in the inner rooms, the old man uselessly put on his shoulders, shaking with old age, armor unused for years, belted a sword on, and made for the massive entry to die. Now you remember the last time we saw Priam is when he came with all that booty to offer Achilles for Hector's ransom. And you remember that the two men wept. And Achilles accepted the booty and he, and he provided shelter for Priam because he knew that if Agamemnon got wind that there was all that booty there, Agamemnon would take it. And he'd probably kill Priam. So everything he did was to protect Priam. Do you guys remember that at the end of the Iliad? It was really important. Well, here we're going back, except now it's not Achilles, it's Pyrrhus, his son. Um, under the open, he's so, so Priam, this old man, is putting on armor. This ancient man, this king, putting on armor, shaking um, to resist what's happening to his city. Under the open sky in a central court stood a big altar, near it a laurel tree of great age, leaning over in deep shade, embowered um, the Penates. At this altar Hecuba and her daughter, like white doves, blown down in a black storm, clung together, enfolding holy images in their arms. Now seeing Prime in a young man's gear, she called out, My poor husband, what mad thought drove you to buckle these weapons? She's horrified to see her husband put this on at his age. Hector could be here. Come to me now. The altar will protect us or else you'll die with us. She's asking her husband, come to us. Now we see Pelides, one of Priam's sons, escape from Pyrrhus's butchery. Pyrrhus goes on killing everybody on page 52. Then he comes to the older couple. Priam says to him, for what you've done, for what you've dared, he said, if there is care in heaven for atrocity, may the gods render fitting thanks, reward you as you deserve. You force me to look on the destruction of my son, defile the father's eyes with death, that great Achilles you claim to be the son of, and you lie, was not like you to Priam, his enemy. To me, you threw myself upon his mercy, he showed compunction, gave me back for burial the bloodless corpse of Hester, Hector and return me to my own realm. Um, Paris, or Pyrrhus says, You'll report the news to Pelides, my father. Don't forget my sad behavior, the degeneracy of Neoptolemus. Now die. With this, to the altar step itself, he dragged him, trembling, slipping in the blood, the pooled blood of his son, took him by the hair with his left hand, the sword flashed in his right up to the hilt, he thrust it in his body. That was the end of Priam. That's the death of Troy. We're watching it, and and I mean it's. I don't think you can miss it. Um, whatever fault Achilles had in Virgil's eyes, his son is cruel and heartless. I mean, he has no compunction about killing this man at all. Um, that was the end of Priam. Um, at that moment, Aeneas is so outraged that he wants to get Helen and kill her. On page 54, 
Venus comes to him. Now, now hold on to this because these things are so important. Remember, we've talked about Venus. She's a goddess of love. Aphrodite is a, is a goddess of love, but it's love in a very different way. It's much more sexual, physical in its nature. She comes to him. He wants to kill Helen. He's so outraged because she's the one largely responsible in her, some ways. Surround so my thoughts, I turn wildly upon her, but at that moment, clear before my eyes, never before so clear in a pure light, step before me, radiant um, through the night, my loving mother came, immortal, tall, and lovely, as the lords of heaven know her, catching me by the hand, she held me back, then with her rose-red mouth reproved me, she said, Son, why let such suffering goad you on to fury, pap control? Where is your thoughtfulness for me, for us? Will you not first revisit the place you left your father, worn and old, or find out if your wife, Creusa, lives, and the young boy, Ascanius, all these, cut off by Greek troops foraging everywhere? This is interesting. He's a warrior. He's so, I mean, remember Achilles and, and uh, Patroclus getting so caught up in war, Patroclus could not stop himself, even though Achilles said, do not go to Troy, to the walls. That's reserved for me. Once he was in the battle, he couldn't stop himself. Venus is coming to him and reproaching him and saying, where's your wife? Where's your son? Where's your father? Because he's a husband and a father, not just a warrior. She's saying, where are they? And um, are you aware of the God's role in this? It's a little bit like somebody saying today, nothing happens without God's permission. Even if it's a war, even if it's a town being destroyed, don't forget that somehow a divine order is involved here. You know, whatever you're doing. Um, your wife, Creusa, young boy, Ascanius, all these cut off from the Greeks. You must not hold a woman of Laconia that hated face, the cause of this, nor Paris. The harsh will of the gods it is, the gods that overthrow the splendor of this place and brings Troy from her height into the dust. The gods are letting something happen. Look over there, I'll tear away the cloud that um, curtains you and films your mortal sight, the fog around you. This is like that moment in the Iliad, if you remember when Diomedes had his um, Aristia. Athena draws the cloud away, and for a moment he's allowed to see the gods interacting with the... So there's these moments when certain men are given the ability to see past appearances to the way God is at work in the world. And... Um, Venus gives him this power here at this moment. And what he sees are the gods allowing something to happen. Have no fear of doing your mother's will or Bacchus obeying her. Look where you see high masonry thrown down, stone torn from stone, with billowing smoke and dust. Neptune is shaking from their beds the walls that this great trident pried up, undermining, toppling the whole city down. And look, Juno and all her savagery holds the Scaean gates and raging in her steel armor calls her allied army from the ships up on the citadel turn look Pallas Tritonia it's Athena couched in a storm cloud lightning with her Gorgon the father himself empowers the Danans urges assaulting gods on the defenders away child put an end to toiling so I shall be near to see you safely home She's saying there's something larger going on. The gods are involved in it. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't forget these other things. So she accompanies home. When he gets home, he finds 
his father there, almost entranced. He wants to get his father away, and his father will come. This is crucial again. His father was raised there. His father before him. His roots are there. I mean, we know these experiences. If you grow up with parents and they're in an awful situation, try to get them in a resting home sometimes. They're, I'm not don't even ask me about that. <laughs> they're not going to go. Um, they want to stay where their roots are. That's where they know who they are. Pick that up and who are they? He's not going to move. Akeen, um, Aeneas is urging him, and, and what happens in this moment is one we've looked at before. It's called, remember, a taking of the auspices. A taking of the auspices. The Catholic Church does that all the time. You get an omen, and to make sure you're reading it right, you wait for a confirmation. The Catholic Church does that on miracles. You know that. They have to because if they didn't, the church would go nuts because people make claims about religious experiences all the time. All the time. Um, and lots of them are illusory. We know that people are capable of that thing. If somebody, if Mary makes an appearance, the church has to do everything it can to confirm it. They can't just accept it. If they did, there would be appearances all the time. It's called taking of the auspices. We saw this in the Aeneid. Remember at the very end, the night before the battle, Aeneas makes an appeal to Zeus. Zeus lets out a thunder. And then the mill woman responds. She said, let, let a curse be on these men who have beaten down my knees. So it's a taking of the auspices. These moments, we, we'll see some more in the Aeneid as we go through it. So this moment happens with Aeneas, or I mean, Ascanius, his father. Um, look down upon us, he says to the gods, that's all I ask. This is on page 57. If by devotion to the gods we earn it, grant us a new sign and confirm this portent. Because Ilius's hair, Ilius's hair, the grandson's hair, lit up as if on fire. So it was like an omen, but they had to wait to have it confirmed. So Ascanius is asking for um, a confirmation. Grant us now a sign and confirm this portent. The old man barely finished when it thundered a loud crack on the left. Out of the sky, through depths of night, a star fell trailing flame and glided on, turning the night to day. The moments confirm the father gets up. Aeneas puts his father on his back, takes his child by his hand, produces next to him, and they leave the city. The bottom of 58, they're leaving the city. Now, this is so important to remember. This is where... Um, I mean, it's just another instance of the way Virgil takes this Greek world and utterly transforms it. Is there anything like this in the Odyssey? Anything like this in the Iliad? Aeneas is a warrior. Venus, his mother, has just rebuked him and said, Why are you here? Why are you not home? Where's your wife? By the way, I didn't read this, but let me go back to it. Um... When Aeneas does return home, just before he gets to his father, he meets his wife, Creusa, and this is what she says to him on page 57. Um, I buckled on sword belt blade, he goes home, but at the door, Creusa hugged my knees, then held up little Elus to his father. If you're going out to die, take us to face the whole thing with you. If experience leads you to put some hope in weaponry, such as you now take, guard your own house here. When you have gone, to whom is Eulus left? Your father? Your wife? One called that long ago? 
Somebody explain that comment. What is she saying to her husband? Just for an example, I mean, as another, you know, to show you. When we did the Iliad, remember early on, I think it was the fifth or sixth book, after Paris was defeated, he goes back to Troy and he makes love with um, Helena. Hector goes back to Troy to get him, you remember? And Andromache says to him, stay here, protect us, your family. And remember Hector takes his son to him, and the son is terrified because of that war helmet he's wearing. So that I remember reading that with you guys. It's one of the most tender moments in all of the Iliad. And as a matter of fact, I, I read it consciously because I think the tendency then is to see Hector as a greater hero than Achilles because he got a family. And But Hector goes back to the war. He leaves his wife and child there. Okay? What's going on here? Somebody explain the tone of Creusa in her words to her husband. If you're going out to die, take us with it. If experience leads you to put some hope in weaponry, that is, if you're going to depend on being a soldier, and um, take us with you, such as you now take guard, but guard your own house here. When you have gone, if you're going to leave us, this is a big change from Hector when he left Andromache. If you're going to leave us, to whom is Aeolus left? Who's going to protect your child? Your father? Your wife? One called that long ago? Somebody describe her tone, explain her tone, what she's saying to her husband. This is Aeneas. Well, what she's saying, this is Sue. Hi, Sue. Is you, you left us to be a warrior long ago. You haven't been the father, the husband, the son for a long time. It's time we took those up. Yeah. Who else better to do it? Yeah. She's also saying, "Are you really married? Your yeah, father, one, one who call, one called that long ago. It's a real rebuke. It's a wife rebuking her husband. I mean, I think she's right on. You know, um, you've got a child and a wife. Where are you? Why weren't you here? It's exactly what Venus said. Remember, where's your wife? So he goes home. He gets his father. So at this moment, he puts his father on his back. He has his son." next to him. They're leaving the city. So these are survivors. What are we? Refugees. I mean, go to Africa, go to a village somewhere. Go to a city in America, God's sake, today. You're being taken over by violent people, and you're fleeing for safety. This is a warrior. He, he is, at this point, after Hector's death, the greatest warrior among the Trojans. Yeah? When Hector died... Aeneas was the next greatest soldier. This man now is fleeing. Father on his back, he's holding his son's hand, and Creusa's behind following. On page 58, When I had said this over my breadth of shoulder and bent neck, I spread out a lion's skin for tawny cloak and stooped to make his weight. He puts the weight of his father. He's carrying his, fa he's carrying his past with him. Do we see anything like that in the Odyssey? Anything like that in the Iliad? Not close. The little Elus put his hand in mine and came with shorter steps beside his father. My wife fell in behind. Through shadowed places on we went, and I lately unmoved by any spears thrown, any squads of Greek. In the middle of the city he was absolutely fearless. 
This is a warrior. He's not going to back down from enemy. He never did. Through shadowed places on we went, I lately unmoved by any spear's throne, any squads of Greek felt terror now, felt terror now at every eddy of wind, alarm at every sound, alert and worried alike for my companion and my burden. The man who two minutes earlier was in the city fighting, now he hears a breeze in the trees and he's shaken to terror. Why? Because he's got the safety of his family on his shoulders. So we're, again, do you see the change? There are these amazing things happening in this book that are carrying the Iliad and the Odyssey forward and being subtly, subtly changed. Um, we made it all the way when suddenly a noise running feet came at near at hand and peering through the gloom ahead my father cried out, run boy, here they come, I see flame lights. So they're being pursued, he takes fright and runs. When they finally get to the clearing where they're going to shortly board ships and leave and you know, set off in their journeys, he turns back and suddenly he realizes Creus is not there. 59 at the bottom. I turn back alone into the city cinching my bright harness, nothing for it but to run the risks again, go back, come all of Troy. He puts himself back in danger. He's in the middle of the city calling for his wife. Okay? He's placing himself as danger. He's going back into the city. Um, flames leaped, and this is page 60. Flames leaped, this is a page before the end of book two. Flames leaped and settled into heat the night, um, in heat to the night sky. I pressed on to see Priam's hall and tower. In the bare colonnades of Juno's shrine, two chosen guards, Phoenix and hard Ulysses, kept watch over the plunder. <laughs> All the Greeks care about is booty. And I hope everybody's hearing this because that wasn't Homer's world, but, but this is Virgil's rendering now of these men taking this city. Ulysses is, is guarding it. Piled up here were treasures of old Troy from every quarter, torn out of burning temples, altars, tables, robes, golden bowls, everything. I even dared to call out in the night. I filled the streets with calling. In my grief, time after time, I groaned and called Creusa, frantic and endless quest from door to door. Then to my vision, her sad wraith appeared. Creusa's ghost, larger than life before me, chilled to the morrow, I could feel the hair on my head rise, the voice clot in my throat, but she spoke out of ease. She spoke out to ease me of my fear. Her care is for him. What's to be gained by giving way to grief so madly, my sweet husband? Nothing here has come to pass except as heaven willed. You may not take Creusa with you now. It was not so ordained, nor does the Lord of High Olympus give you leave. For you long exile waits and long sea miles to plow. You shall make landfall in Hesperia where Lydian Tiber flows with gentle peace. Now remember, she's got, he's in some sense giving a prophecy of where, what his end is. And remember that line from Eliot. In my end is my beginning. In my beginning is my end. She already knows. He doesn't, but she does. She's among the shades. You shall make landfall in Asperia where Lydian Tiber flows with um, gentle pace between rich farmlands and the years will bear glad peace, a kingdom and a queen for you. Dismiss these tears for your beloved Creusa. 
I shall not see the proud homeland, homelands of Myrmidons or of Dolopians or go to serve Greek ladies. She won't be a slave. She's passed. So she says, No, the great mother of the gods, this is top of 61, No, the great mother of the gods detains me here on these shores. Fare ne farewell now, cherish still your son and mine. With this she left me weeping, wishing that I could say so many things, and faded on the tenuous air. Three times I tried to put my arms around her neck, three times enfolding nothing. Remember, Odysseus tried to clasp his mother three times. Um, is there anything like this in the Odyssey? In the Iliad? He has to give up his wife, and his wife selflessly says, don't weep for me. She cares more about him than she does for herself. And her parting words are, cherish still your son and mine. She's saying, cherish my son. Kiss him. I mean, is there anything like that between Penelope and Telemachus? Over and over and over again, Virgil keeps showing us um, who we are by how willing we are to give something up. I don't think there's a better way to put it. Aeneas is losing his life, his whole background. He's carrying his gods and his father and his child. His wife was with him. She got lost. It's going to be important for everything that happens, but at this point she gives him up. There, there's nothing approaching this tenderness in the Odyssey. A mother saying goodbye to her husband, giving him up willingly, and saying, cherish my son. She says it in loss. Does Penelope ever approach anything like that? Does Helen? Um, the morning star now um, rose on Ida's ridges bringing day. Greeks had secured the city gates. No help of hope of help existed. So I resigned myself, picked up my father, and turn my face towards the mountain range. They are refugees, exiles, they're leaving their city, and um, the book three will begin with um, Aeneas continuing his story, except now, um, instead of facing the archetypes, you know, that Odysseus did, all the archetypes that we looked at, he's gonna be trying to found the city. And what we're, I'm, I'm, I'm only gonna spend a little bit of time on books three and four. Um, so I'm going to plan to cover three and four both next time. What we're going to find is that Aeneas is going to try to found a city. Immediately, right offshore, there's an island. And every time he attempts to found a city, something happens. Um, he has to go back to um, um, Delphi to consult with the gods, actually twice, because he gets it wrong. He keeps thinking he's doing the will of the gods that he's doing what God wants and finds he's getting it wrong and he has to go on and he'll go on for seven years until the middle of the story when um, Juno will cause these winds to stir and blow him off course up on um, the, um, the north coast of Africa in Carthage where he will tell the stories. So in the next book he's going to cover basically seven years and what's going to happen in those seven years is he's going to fail again and again and again. He's going to misread the gods. He thinks he's, he, he's giving his life to the gods. He's doing everything he can to do their will. And he keeps getting it wrong. He's going to be with Dido for a year. We're going to look at that closely. That's book four. 
and um, they will have an affair. He will give up his calling. Um, Mercury is going to come to Aeneas and he's going to put a real scare into him. Aeneas's hair is going to stand up and end. He's going to be so terrified. And Mercury is going to say, um, what do you do here serving a woman? He's got, it's like putting earrings and he's got sword belts with jewels and he's becoming effeminate and giving into luxury. And Mercury is saying, what are you doing? You've got a calling, get on. And he leaves, and I'm not going to tell you what happens, but the way Virgil presents it makes clear that what happens between Dido and Aeneas, this is Carthage beginning. Remember, he's going to go on to find Rome. What happens here with Dido is the etiological, it's a fancy word, the, gene, the genealogy, it's the genesis, it's the seeds of the Punic Wars. So it's really important to look at what happens in book four when he goes to Dido and says, I have to leave. Um, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but that's me. So book three is about his wanderings. We'll cover that fairly directly and then book four with Dido. So book three, four, and five, I think we can get through pretty directly. But I wanted to take time here because this really lays the foundations for the first half of the book. So. Um, I hope you all can see what's going on that the point that I made earlier that what Virgil is doing is taking that whole Greek world it's built into every single well here let me let me put it this way well we can't do it until we do with um, Dido Aeneas has got a relationship with his wife she's gonna die she's gonna leave behind she says cherish our son love him she's giving him up um, Look at the women in the Iliad Odyssey. Could Helen do that? Would she? Does Penelope come close to that? When we get to Dido, Dido and Aeneas are going to have an affair. Dido is the Circe Calypso image. Remember that in the, in the um, Odyssey, Odysseus is under the influence of Calypso for a year. He was under the um, influence of Calypso for eight years. Circe. Circe, no, Calypso for eight years. Nine, so of, of the nine and a half years that he's away, nine of them under the influence of Circe and Calypso. Um, Dido is that figure. He's with Dido for a year. So what's, what's the difference between Dido as a feminine influence in Aeneas' world from Calypso and uh, Circe and Odysseus? Is that clear? In, in everything that Virgil's doing, he's taking the whole of the Homeric world. It's embedded in the work. Um, so that's the point that I was making earlier. You can look at the surface and think you're seeing something when something else is going on. Let me put this differently. Imagine that you would not read the Iliad and the Odyssey and you're picking up Virgil and you're reading Virgil for the first time. Could you go through the first two books the way we've gone through them? and see the way Virgil is taking the Iliad and the Odyssey and changing them, the way he presents Iliad, the Odyssey, the end of Troy. So on the surface we're being given this line, if you've never read Iliad and the Odyssey, that is, if you've never gone back to the tradition and carried it forward, there are lots of things underneath the surface you will not see. That was the point I was making. Is that clear? 
it's so important. It, 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 it's just a way of, of reminding us that we don't see very well. We think we see well all the time when we don't. There's a lot under the surface that's going on. And one of the great things that Virgil did was to make us aware of that. Is that clear? No? Anne? You okay? Michelle? Karen? Okay. Are you being on? Are you okay? Good. That if got a thumbs up from both of you. That's so. That's the uh, that's the um, apophatic that I've been talking about. That that um, Virgil is the first one who makes us aware of how important a tradition is. That's what's why it's so, it's almost a matter of of distress for me when I think about our Catholic world and how much we've lost that we don't carry the past forward. That we there's a lot we're missing, you know, in our faith and. The Catholic Church is this rich tradition. It it so deepens our faith, and Virgil is important in this. It's remember, Virgil is Dante's guy. Dante's writing in in um, thirteen hundred. It's just before the collapse of the Christian Middle Ages. He he's going to bring the Christian Middle Ages to an end. His guide is Virgil. What he makes clear is how important tradition is for our faith. It helps us to see. It helps us to feel. Virgil's helping us to feel things we, we would never feel with Homer. Scene after scene after scene, we keep experiencing losses. Dear friends, comrades, a wife. Um, he's got, in the next two books, he's going to lose his father. Um, and, and when he goes on, um, he, it's, it's interesting. He loses his nurse. When Odysseus comes home, Who's the first person to recognize him besides the dog? It's his nurse. She's there. There will be no nurse for Aeneas. He, they go, and it goes to your question, you know, about rebuilding Troy. Mm -hmm. Aeneas is stepping into a... He's stepping into a world of burdens. He's got to create something new. He can't just rebuild the past. The gods are asking him to go on. And everything he does is going to involve a struggle. He's got to let go of everything in the past before he can go on. So it's the great work of renunciations or relinquishments of giving up in order for something greater. The great exemplar after that is Paul. That's what Paul's life was. And Paul was only making clear what um, what Christ asked. That we're asked to give up everything to love the way he does. So the, in the natural order, this book is approaching what Christ asked. It's as if Virgil is giving us a glimpse of what's about to be. Let me stop there. Any, any questions before we close for the night? You guys all following? Hmm? Alexander? Sorry? Dr. Alexander? Yes, Kate. I really like uh, Virgil. His style, very poetic. It's, his book is uh, written in a poetic form. Yes. I agree, Kay. Couldn't agree more. I'm so glad. I agree with you, absolutely. I'm so glad you feel it, too.
Yeah, remember last week I said that we look at Homer as a primitive epic. Virgil is a secondary epic. It's it's more literary. It's more consciously artful, because he's got he's got Homer behind him. You know, he can do something. So, but you're absolutely right. There's a beauty to his lines, and it I think it helps evoke feelings of tenderness or sadness or loss. You know that that I don't think we feel quite so strongly in Homer. Yeah, I agree with you a lot. I'm glad you feel it. Okay. Um, any other comments or? Sorry. I don't. It's your name, Doc. Bill. Anything? I've not heard from you. Any? You got any comments here? Not heard from you. Can you unmute yourself? Can you unmute? Unmute it. Go ahead. Robert, unmute everybody. I, I can't. I don't know how to do it, Doc. Unmute. How do you? Just Wait a second. Just hit the mute button. Uh, we ever? No, it's a cancel. Bill, can you unmute your? Can you unmute your? Because I didn't hear you. Can you all? Can you guys hear me? Or are we still on in sound? Uh -huh. Oh, there you are. Wait, Bill, can we hear? Can you unmute your? Did you unmute your button? Oh, not getting you. Dang. Can't hear you. Sorry. I really want to hear from you. I really want to hear from you. Um. Okay, you guys, enjoy your reading. It's, it's an extraordinary book. It, it, it is the book that brings the whole ancient world into the church. St. Augustine, St. Augustine read it and wept. St. Paul wept reading this book. Um, it's the book that sort of prepared the natural world for Christianity. It's an extraordinary work. So you guys enjoy your reading. Um, keep each other in prayers. Please, we all will. Um, okay. Um, Connie, if you talk with Mary, tell her for me to behave. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, send you her, uh, I'll send you her email address. Okay, okay. Tell us we all miss her. Yeah, yeah, good. I'm glad you said that. Tell her that, would you? I will, I will. Okay, you guys be safe. All of you stay safe. See you next week. Thank you. 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 Felt really hot for a while. I don't know what I'm going to do to keep my wife quiet a little bit. Quiet a little bit? Well, you kept jumping in and. Well, you kept. I know that some of them were, you know, just be still and listen, but a couple of them were off. Um, I really would like you to get in on this more. I can't. I don't know well enough. Sorry? I can't. I don't know it well enough.
It's an amazing story. It is. It's my favorite of the three of I know you've said that, and I just... I hope, I think this thing about the apophatic is becoming clear that the more we get into that and the more I say it, the more they'll see that. Um, it's amazing, Doc, to watch what he does. How, how can somebody take something from the past and carry it literally and still change it? And that's what Christ did. And if, um, and we don't, it's hard to see that in Scripture, but if you read the Aeneid, you can't miss it. You just can't miss it. And then you think, holy cow, what don't I see? What am I not seeing? Um, it's a stunning book. I'm glad I read through, I should have done it earlier today. Reading through the passages, you know, with city or the city getting destroyed, the, I, I should have read the um, passage with Hector when Aeneas sees Hector, and but all those passages, particularly with Creus and um, I remember Hector coming to him. What does Hector say? It, I think it's, it's so long coming. Why? Where have you been? It's. Um, I'll give it to you. Is um, before or after Hector's dead? It's after he's dead, Doc. He's a ghost. He's already dead. Um, you know, anyway, it's all, all those tender Venus coming to him and chiding him, um, asking and, um, and, um, All those are just those rebukes. Um, here. Wait. Where in the world? I'm just finding it. Here. Page 43. Oh. 